Good afternoon, everyone. It's Dr. Niagara again. Our next episode of Psychology Unplugged. Thanks to all of our many listeners and followers. Um, just looking at the numbers, uh, I don't really check them that often. Periodically, I'll just glance Google send me like an email. I can't believe how many people follow our program uh, and are starting to follow us on uh, Instagram, which Julie and I are muddling our way through with the help of her kids and their spouses, who are much more adept at doing that. Uh, but thanks for all the comments and likes. Uh, try to post pictures of different like books and resources. Um, and obviously, that's Julie making noise in the background, like clockwork with this program. So, uh, again, thank you for all the positive comments. Uh, it really makes my day. I, I make sure makes Julie... Seriously? It sure makes Julie's day when I get a text in the middle of the day. Hey, Dr. Niagara, thanks to you and Julie uh, for everything. I, I talked to my primary care, and I finally got the referral. I'm going to start therapy. So that makes this all the worthwhile uh, and the time and the energy that I, I put into this. Um, so a heartfelt thank you. Uh, so I like that some of you guys were given... Um, Topics and um, on Instagram, which I got to figure out how to respond to people's messages and tells you like somebody wants to send you a message. So I'll figure it out eventually, but you have other ways to get in contact with me. So uh, we're, we're going to talk today about a, a very different aspect, uh-huh, a very different aspect of uh, the field of psychology and psychiatry. We're going to talk about psychiatric hospitalizations and inpatient treatment and residential treatment. Uh, and this is really when you're getting to the part where symptoms cannot be um, managed effectively on an outpatient basis. Uh, someone may have suicidal ideations uh, or suicide attempt, homicidal ideations, uh, self-injurious behaviors to a point where it requires medical care. And in the United States, we, we have something I would guess is National, Julie, what do you think? It's called a Section 12, which is uh, a medical professional's ability to essentially involuntarily hospitalize someone um, if, they, if, 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 like myself or Julie, believe that the person was a danger to themselves or others. So back in Chicago, where I'm from, uh, during my, my doctoral training, I was also very at a very privileged uh career path prior to becoming a, a neuropsychologist is I, I ran a uh, 192-bed inpatient um, psychiatric facility that was more um, short-term, but it was more residential as well. And uh, I was in charge of several hundred staff, a multi-million dollar budget. And it was, it, it, I think, that experience in, in seeing a different face of, of mental health and the severity of it, I think, has contributed uh, into my continually growing and evolving ability as a, a neuropsychologist, as, as a clinician, as a level of empathy um, and, and, and diagnostic acuity. Because, yes, I had an administrative role, but it was fascinating for me as, as, as a student at, at an elevated level of education, getting my doctorate in, in, in psychology, neuropsychology, to see what acute mental health looked like. You know, we would read about it in, in textbooks and, you know, you'd read about case vignettes and, um, 
you know, see pictures of like what's called like the the schizophrenic mask. It's kind of this very blank, uh, hollow hollowness uh, to a person's face. But I remember, uh, you know, the secretary. Her, her name was Dolores, and she she was just she was a riot, and she would yell like "Code Yellow, Code Yellow," or "Code Red, Code Red." And they were, and these, those were code names for like behavioral problems. And you basically everybody in the facility just dropped what they were doing, and it was uh, seven floor or eight floors, and you'd run up and you you would you would see uh, what mania looked like. You would see somebody actively hallucinating, a- actively being delusional. Um, aggression and I, I mean I, I had a certainly had a, 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 a significant role in terms of what I needed to to, to, to do in terms of my my profession but I was I was uh, you know I was in a you know the administrator executive director but I was also a, a clinician and it really helped in shaping my ability because I would go back to class and be like yeah but that does it seems different um so if you if you follow the program you kind of pick up on my personality that i am uh unconventional uh thank you for all the likes and the comments on my office on instagram uh it's where i spend the most amount of my time and yes my office is much cooler than julie's but um thank you for all that it's eclectic uh but i'm somebody who really kind of thinks outside the box and 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 tries to, you know, evolve uh, as an individual, help the field evolve as, as a whole. Um, so it, what I found interesting is when we would get new patients, they would always come in with an initial diagnosis from the hospital after they were being discharged um, with usually schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder. And I, I remember, I can't remember specifically, but I remember... Taking a step back and being like, because uh, we meet every morning, do like another team meeting, and you know, look at the census, and I you know, have them run, you know, the different diagnoses. I'm like, how could we have, you know, if, if you look at the prevalence rates in the, in the DSM, we had everybody in one building. It, it, it just it didn't make sense to me. How could everybody be diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, and then everybody or, or, or bipolar with or without psychotic features? What I came to find out is there is a financial reason for that. And an insurance reason for that, because if you are diagnosed with one of those disorders or maybe schizophrenia, you are a, a, a facility is allowed to prescribe any class of medication. Okay, so it's very different if you just discharge with a generalized anxiety disorder. They're not going to cover, at least in the United States, they're not going to cover. Uh, when I say generalized, they're not going to cover, you know, like 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 Seroquel, um, antipsychotic, or what are you looking at me? I'm saying the, the people were diagnosed with with either these one or two or three different disorders, but there there's there's an insurance reason and a financial reason for it, um, which allows them to prescribe any class of medication and will be picked up by insurance, whether it's public or private or statewide insurance. Uh, so what I did is I started a clinical training program with different universities and had uh, psychologists that were were professors of mine, uh, licensed psychologists. They, they, we started a clinical training program uh, because I was like, okay, well, you know, we only have so much money in the budget for staff, but students need practicum hours, internships, and postdoctoral hours, uh, just like all the ones that I had to do. And in return, you need a place to one. You, you need a place to be able to do that. Um, ours, I think, varied by state, and Illinois was 
pretty strict and, and uh, a lot of hours, a lot of hours of training. Um, but we, so we started the clinical training program with, with both uh, therapy and with testing. And it was amazing that we were able to clarify with a much more, you know, my perspective uh, with testing is it's, 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 it's the necessary ingredient for any type of treatment. But it was really fascinating to see the clarification. And one thing when you're running a large facility is you want to make sure your census is high enough. And we were able to reduce psychiatric hospitalizations by almost 80% because we all had a better understanding with the testing of what 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 people were being treated for and and there were numerous medication changes and you know psychiatrists were really on board with it. It, it 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 helped them because just like in julie's work and she looks at the eval that i do she um you know not that she reads them but that's not really in her discipline what she needs to do um, but you need to know what the, what the diagnostic picture is to determine what, what, what course or medication trajectory that she's going to uh, put a patient on. But it was, it was really transformative, and it was an amazing experience, but it really helped me. And, and, and something that I've seen in, in, in private practice, again, why I'm such a staunch proponent of, of testing is because when you go – a lot of times you go inpatient, you similarly are diagnosed with, with like bipolar – Major uh, depression with psychotic features, uh, schizoaffective disorder, and that's on, that that's stamped on your discharge paperwork. And the problem is that diagnosis never goes unchecked, and that is that is so. Uh, I, and I can tell you this from experience: I will never look at hospital discharge paperwork prior to doing a neuropsych eval because human nature is you can't unknow something. If you see the word bipolar, if you see the word psychosis, if you see the word delusion, human nature is you start to look for it and almost second guess yourself. So I never look at any hospital paperwork. I look at it after I've done the testing and I have an idea of what the diagnosis is. And then I can't, I can't tell you how many times they're so diametrically opposite one another. And it's, I'm not saying like, oh my God, I'm, you know, I have all the answers. I'm just saying, you know, you're not getting testing on an inpatient unit. You're not getting testing in the in, in the acute stages of uh, a, a spike in symptomatology. But you know, if you've if you've been psychiatrically hospitalized, if you know somebody who's been psychiatrically hospitalized, I would strongly encourage you to get get a neuropsych eval to really clarify what that diagnostic picture is, because sometimes in the in the acute stages, Julie. In the acute stages, uh, when somebody's just like totally freaking out, you, it, it could look like panic. It could look like schizophrenia. It could look like psychosis. It could look like borderline personality. And I think, you know, and the goal of like the inpatient units is just to stabilize, not necessarily treat, but just to stabilize to, you know, where a person is no longer a threat to themselves or others. And sometimes the, the, the hospitalizations are, you know, maybe just a few days. And I've had people who've been hospitalized. Seriously, who've been hospitalized? <laughs> it's just part of the program. Uh, people who've been hospitalized uh, multiple times—that that you know—that helps in, in, in formulating a diagnostic picture. And there's some people who feel very comfortable, ironically, being hospitalized. It's it—they feel safe. 
they feel that they can't live outside of the like almost like recidivism with patient with people who've been incarcerated for a long period of time. It's like I'm so used to the rules of prison. I don't know how to live a normal functioning life outside of the, the structure of being incarcerated. That's why recidiv- the recidivism rates. Are, are really high. Uh, so Julie also has experience uh, working on an inpatient unit. I think she worked with primarily with adolescents. Uh, so I, I'm going to let her jump on and talk about her experience because um, this, this was prior to her being uh, a psychiatric prescriber. Oh. <clears throat> I want to make noise. <laughs> Go ahead. Hey, guys. Um Thank you again for following us um, on Instagram, uh, which, yes, Cora said very aptly. We still uh, muddling through for sure. And uh, um, and also, of course, the podcast. We uh, can't emphasize enough how much it means to us and how grateful we are and privileged and honored we are to be able to speak to you um, you know, see you for testing, um, meet your families, um, when you come out for testing. And, um, it's just turned into this really extraordinary experience for us. And, um, we're going to do it as long as we can, you know, cause our goal is to really help people. Um, a couple of things I'd like to say about inpatient units. Um, I guess I could talk about my work, uh, on an inpatient unit. Um, I guess I could, I could go back and and look at it, but I I think I'd rather talk about it from a perspective as a prescriber and, um, a a healthcare provider, um, in my community. Um, I think that, uh, what people don't realize is, um, inpatient units vary in, who they treat. There are some fancy schmancy places where you could just pay cash and get treatment. Um, those are usually very rare and they're usually dual diagnosis involving substance abuse treatment. Um, they're very, very expensive. Um, we never refer people to, to these places really. Um, but however, uh, there, those do exist. Um, they're worth looking into if you have a good amount of money to spend um, and you don't have to rely on insurance. Private insurance um, helps people get into uh, facilities that pick and choose their patients. We have a facility locally um, or in Massachusetts that's very well known in the country. Um, I'm not saying that they pick and choose their patients. That's not what I'm saying, but um, it varies in the two experience I've had both working for a prominent uh, private uh, inpatient hospital, McLean, I'm sure you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but it's uh, very well known uh, throughout the world, um, but it's, it's also a Harvard teaching facility. Um, but I, I was, I was um, privileged and honored to learn um, so much from working there as a therapist and um, I ran groups. Um, I primarily did cognitive behavioral therapy and DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, teaching skills um, on an adolescent unit, but also an adult unit. Um, I also taught yoga as a form of uh, de- uh, the last um, 
um, the last section of DBT, which is um, movement and um, grounding techniques using your body, um, which um, really was a wonderful experience. Um, but then there's also the other inpatient facilities out there, which are money makers, in my opinion. Yes, I said out loud. I did work for one for several years, um, not as a prescriber, but as a, a group guru. I was considered the group guru there. And I'd work on the partial day program, uh, adults and adolescents. And I also worked with um, inpatient adolescents and adults um, all over the map, meaning anything you could just the 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 schizophrenia the schizoaffective disorder the um dual diagnoses the bipolar the um you know the full-blown mania the full-blown um even substance-induced psychosis you see it all very raw and real on an inpatient unit it's sort of like a protective container to keep you safe while you're not well and um, I have to say some hospitals out there and you need to be careful because what I witnessed in my experience on one of these inpatient hospitals, which was part of a very large um, corporation uh, located throughout the country, um, I found it deplorable in my opinion how they would take very dangerous people and put them on a, the same unit as a uh, people who are organically um, mentally ill. And I would see people with full-blown schizophrenia in a group with someone who was, had a very dangerous and violent history, and that is not a good mix. And I saw a lot of damage. I saw a lot of damage and a lot of violence. Now, it all depends on the facility. It all depends on, you know, the people that they have working there and how they, how regiment, regimented they are about keeping the facility safe. Sometimes it's very hard to keep these facilities safe. Um, you know, um, healthcare providers get injured on these units. Um, anyway, that being said, that's just sort of like the, the basic construct that I, that I have seen um, in two different types of inpatient establishments. The most important thing you have to remember is there's always the emergency room. There's always urgent care. If you're not feeling okay, get help. You can call 911 or you can have a friend if you're well enough to drive. Obviously, drive yourself. But if you're not, you have a family member or a friend or a coworker or a colleague, someone to drive you to safety, to get evaluated. So the next step happens is that they have to medically clear you in an emergency room. This takes hours at times, depending on how busy it is. And it can be very disruptive and, you know, anxiety provoking for someone who's having mental health issues being in an emergency room, because if you've ever been in an emergency room, you know, it's quite unpredictable, the environment there. Um, and, you know, it's not, it's not everybody's favorite place to be. And so what they do is they usually will have a psychiatrist or a social worker or an NP of somebody, a counselor, come down and meet with whoever it is that's getting help, and they will screen them. 
So here's what usually happens. Sometimes by the time someone gets to an emergency room and they're really in crisis and they're not feeling so great, they're sick and tired of being in the emergency room and they're like, I'm fine. There's no problem here. I'm fine. So sometimes people get discharged from the emergency room because, you know, they kind of get freaked out. And that's, that's treatment in and of itself, depending on how, you know, how, how bad off someone is feeling at that time. Don't interrupt me. And so I want to say also, when you are in an emergency room awaiting inpatient placement, you need to know this because this is absolutely true. You will be sent to the first open bed in the state. That is the rule of thumb. What I always teach my clients and anyone I know who is interested in this area is that you always hold out for the place you really want to go. You can always say, I want to go here. And you can wait there, and it might not be pleasant, but you can wait for a bed. Sometimes people aren't that bad off that they need to be inpatient, and they they wind up doing a partial day program where you just go for the day. During the pandemic, it was mostly telehealth, Zoom. Now people are getting back into the, you know, kind of back into the groove of uh, doing it in person. I've done partial programs. They're wonderful programs. That's also another thing I wanted to talk about just as a little caveat to if you're not feeling right, look for a local partial day program. Um, So I know I'm saying a lot, um, maybe kind of some practical things. Um, If you're not feeling safe, really tell someone the truth um, because that's the only way you're going to get help. Sometimes people will tell someone they love that they want to hurt themselves. So that puts that other person in a precarious position. And sometimes they get, you know, in trouble for it by the person that they're trying to help because they get angry um, for a bit uh, if someone is sectioned or. But uh, generally, when someone's not feeling safe, that's what we do. We we evaluate them. um, We make sure that there's no imminent danger and we try to rule that out as best as we can. Um, but ish, inpatient facilities are, thank God we have them. Um, they're not state hospitals. Those are different. Those are the ones you see all the movies about. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Oh, God, what's the other one? Um, Girl Interrupted. Bellevue. Um, Bellevue, is that a movie? No, but documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the documentaries you've seen about like these state hospitals where they really, and there are a lot of movies out there that I can't name the names, but where they really hold and keep people who are very, very dangerous to themselves and or other people. Um, People who aren't, you know, fit to be in prison, but they could also be dangerous. They're usually held in state hospitals um, as well. Um, That's for the chronically, chronically mentally ill. That is for someone who maybe is a ward of the state, um, you know, family has no money or they have no family, um, you know, that's sort of the end of the road for them, but that at least it's a facility that will help contain and care for them and give them medication and, you know, proper treatment. Um, But inpatient units are, it's kind of a funny place because as a provider, as a medication provider, I've had patients that have gone inpatient over the years that have had, you know, maybe a bad weekend, something horrible happened over the weekend or something they couldn't manage. And then 
lo and behold, you know, I, I'm hearing that, oh gosh, they went on an, an inpatient unit. Um, here's, here's what's crucial about that. If you ever have a, a client that goes inpatient, it's so helpful when the inpatient facility reaches out to collaborate with you. I have a really good system with McLean with, um, with when my patients go to McLean because the doctors there are really very good about communicating with the outside treatment providers on an outpatient level like myself and also the therapists. That is a very nice collaboration of care right there because what usually happens, and I don't know how many of you have experienced this yourselves or, you know, have a family member because we are all touched by mental health on some level is they take everybody off their meds, all of the meds when they're inpatient, because they can. They can take, they can remove the medication um, and see the behavior for what it really is. And I think that's part of why people go inpatient and why people wind up on different medications by the time they're out. So you're thinking about like going to an emergency room and then going inpatient because you're in crisis And then you're on, like, let's say you're on three medicines, but you're not doing well. It's very likely that the psychiatrist or the NP that's working in the inpatient unit will probably do like a wash and spin where they just kind of, you know, take you off everything, see what they're really dealing with, and then use their favorite medications for their particular symptoms that they're seeing. And like Corey said before, it is so helpful to have a neuropsych evaluation because that's something that you can take with you to an inpatient unit. That's something that's proof. It's, it's, it's a document saying this is what I have because it's just as important to know what you have as much as it's important to know what you don't have. And that's the problem with inpatient units as also. And it's, I'm not criticizing anybody working on an inpatient unit. My God, I mean, I think, I think it's wonderful that they do so. It's just from my perspective, sometimes depending on who the provider is that is at that particular facility, you're going to get the same kind of, you know, prescribing style. Like I've always said, you can put five of us or six of us in a room with the same diagnosis and you could get six different opinions because there's no real protocol. So sometimes people feel like they're just kind of going through this flow of like being taken off their medicines and they put them on new medicines. But really the inpatient units are designed to help people become stable, stable enough to attend groups on a very, you know, uh, pedestrian level. And then ultimately, you know, just function and not be a danger to themselves or others. And obviously they're more visually and verbally stable. And then they're ready to step down to either a partial day program, which is ideal. It's usually two weeks, five days a week. Sometimes you go half days, but I think it's a wonderful transition to do that. If you've ever been inpatient to just continue that care, but it's on a higher level in a way where intellectually you're going to be able to not only, um, because you're more stable, you're able to absorb more information and learn better. So you're able to get more out of the groups that they have in these, um, partial day programs. 
which is a lot of DBT, a lot of CBT, all what we talk about, um, dual diagnosis, a lot of substance abuse stuff um, they're using on inpatient units as well, because as we all know that, you know, it, it substance use is just, a, you know, a, it's a symptom um, that something else is wrong. And um, so it's, it's quite interesting that way. So, so that's sort of my perspective on things. Sometimes um, I'm glad there are inpatient units, thank God for them, because sometimes people really are having a hard time. And it's not always easy for people on an outpatient level to really know what's going on with everybody all the time, because we're really seeing people once a month generally, unless, you know, it's a new client of mine. If I have new clients and they're not right, they're not, they're not feeling right just yet. I see them more frequently, um, before they, they're kind of settled. So, uh, that's sort of, you know, a little bit of education about inpatient units, but you're going to see literally, um, on an inpatient unit, a lot of volatility, a lot of emotionality. And the last thing I want to say I've had several patients that had never been on an inpatient unit that were in crisis that went to an inpatient unit and they actually said it made them more grateful because they were able to say to themselves, gosh, I thought I was bad off, but you know, someone always has it worse. And that in itself can be very therapeutic and um, a good treatment. And I've had so many people tell me that that I've taken on as new clients. Um, it's a very interesting um, phenomenon with, um, with inpatient unit visits. So anyway, uh, that's me in a nutshell. I'm, I'm sorry I went on and on and on and on and on. And sorry about the dishes. Listen, we had a busy day. We finally found a freaking apple orchard. After four. After four. We were... We, I was going to be, I was going to be in a very bad headspace if and now I couldn't we have get way, some. Way too many apples. So we finally <laughs> found a little tiny. I know this isn't really interesting, but a little tiny, like a little stand that had so many apples, all these different kinds. We just bought. We're surrounded by apples. I, I they're all around us in huge bags. We have probably over a thousand apples right now. It's just because we just went overboard. So. We are really behind. We went grocery shopping. Sorry, I had to do the dishes, so I apologize for the white noise in the background. Love you guys, and God bless you. Talk to you next week. All right. Thank you, honey, for adding that. So this is just a, just a different aspect to the field of psych- uh, uh, mental health. Uh, a lot of times I have recommended proactively for adolescents to attend. Uh, they may, may not be in crisis, but they just need a little bit of extra support than just once a week therapy. And sometimes it, it helps in, in the sense of, like Julie said, like, boy, I don't, I don't have it as bad. But it, it also, I think a lot of times for adolescents, it's like, I'm not alone. Yes, I'm, and that's also for adults as well. Yeah, it, 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 I was absolutely that. that is one of the most important points to make. Right, is that you feel less alone. Mm-hmm. People will be in groups with you that are going through. That doesn't have to be the same, but you you will absolutely not feel. There's alone. a there's a huge power and therapeutic benefit in that. Um, that's like wow. Okay, you know I've held this secret in for a long time. Nobody, you you you, you cut too. Or you're 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 
your dad beat you too? I mean, for whatever it is, I mean, you don't want to bond over pathology, but I think it could certainly help in, in, in demystifying it and, and give a sense of uh, really uh, not make it as, 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 as scary and... Um, like I, said, like I said, thank God we have these facilities. Uh, I'd love to hear if you guys from other countries want to share like what inpatient treatment is like. And, and again, I think people do the best they can. They are very hostile environments because psychopathology is, is rearing its ugly head uh, and you're seeing for what it is. But I can't tell you how many times uh, different uh, like, like McLean and other uh, facilities have reached out because they've had a neuropsych eval. Even if I hadn't, even if I haven't finished writing it yet, I usually know by the end of doing the testing what the diagnosis is. I'm able to communicate with the with the with the social workers. I'm able to communicate with the psychiatrists and give them the diagnosis. Again, that's such a huge piece because they may be saying, "Oh, I think it's bipolar." Now it's really borderline, and I have the data to prove it. And a lot of people have been, have, you know, really benefited. From the evals. Uh, so if you are ever in a state where you, you need that extra bit of help, uh, go to your local emergency room, um, 911 in the United States. Um, you know, these are these are things never always there on the side of caution if you are a mental health provider who listens to our program. Uh, you, none of us can predict human behavior with 100% accuracy. But if you believe someone's a danger to themselves or others, at least in the United States, I'm sure in other industrialized countries, there are resources in order to help manage this. So until next time, uh, you can reach me at psychologyunplugged at outlook.com. You can reach me uh, at, on Facebook at psychology underscore, or not Facebook, Instagram. <laughs> so bad we are with Instagram. Uh, Instagram, psychology underscore unplugged underscore. Uh, you can contact me directly, 617-750-9411, East Coast Standard Time. Um, we cannot get anybody's messages, so DMing us, we're not... Oh, yeah, we can't get anybody's messages on Instagram. So text or call us or So if, us. if you want to get a hold of me, email me, or text me, or call me. Uh, but appreciate all the all the followers and continue with these the suggestions. Some of the topics are great. It's just I can, I can answer them probably in a, in a two-minute episode. Um but, you know, feel free to reach out to me if you have very specific questions. I just don't know if I could talk for 20, 30 minutes on some of the questions. They're great questions, though. And, uh, again, if we're helping people, that, that's what makes this all worthwhile. Uh, on a side note, Bruce Springsteen is coming out with a new album, um, Only the Strong Survive. If you love it's a kind of re retooling of, like, Motown in the 60s and 70s, I would encourage you. Uh, the Commodore song, Night Shift, check out his video. It's awesome. Bruce, hope to meet you someday. Uh, until next week, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and we'll figure out what to do with all of these apples. Bye, guys.